Well, I was glad when they said unto me, why don't you drive up to Wisconsin to the church that raised you, see all the people that uh, you've known for years. My name is Derek Bukema. I uh, am the pastor of Orland Park Christian Reformed Church. I bring you greetings from Orland Park Christian Reformed Church. I'm so thankful to be with you today. I'm really, really excited about it. And if you don't know who I am, I am a son of the congregation, but it's been like 20 years since I went off to college. So, I mean, it's been a minute. Uh, So, you know, good to be back. Would you turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 49? We're going to read Psalm 49. I just want to say a few things before I actually read it. I mean, it it is really moving to be here, to be in this pulpit. I'm want to say thank you to you, to everyone that was faithful to your own vows at my baptism to pray for me and to demonstrate through your life what it means to trust and follow Jesus. It had an extraordinary uh, influence on my own walk with the Lord. And to look out and see people that I know were active as my own Sunday school teachers and youth group leaders, uh, cadet leaders within this space is extraordinarily moving and really beautiful. And I'm thankful because I realize that God is the God who saves, but God uses means, and the means that he uses to bring children to know and serve and love him are some of the people that I look out and see here. And so thank you, thank you, thank you. I'm grateful for you. I pray for you as a church, and I am thrilled that I get to be here today. So I want to just talk a little bit about a psalm that caught my interest as I was working through the Psalter. I don't know if this ever happens to you, that you read a text of Scripture and you're like, I swear I've never read that before. I think God just put that into the Bible right now as I've been reading, because I've read through the book of Psalms a number of times, but as I was working through Psalm 49, I was like, I think God just put it there again, because I never noticed it before. And it's a psalm that kind of stuck with me, and I was like, I've got to figure this one out. I've got to work out what the psalm writer is doing. And for us to understand what's going on in Psalm 49, it's probably important that we understand two things about the psalm before we hear it read. The first is that it's a kind of genre that is um, pretty atypical within the Psalter. This is a wisdom psalm. There are a few psalms, but only a few, throughout the 150 that make their way into our Bible that are wisdom psalms. This one, Psalm 90, not very many others. But, but you can take a look with me just at the introduction here, and there are four indications of the kind of psalm that this is. In verse 3, my mouth will speak words of wisdom. The utterance from my heart will give understanding. I will turn, in verse 4, my ear to a proverb. With the harp, I will expound my riddle. Those are four words that all speak to the kind of psalm that this is. It's a wisdom psalm, which means wisdom, as it's used by God in the Bible, is something that's for everybody. It's something that everyone should be able to have access to. Everybody that looks at the world and sees the way that God has made it and is using reason should be able to understand what's going on in in this particular work. The book of Proverbs is something that people who don't necessarily profess trust in Jesus still can benefit from because of the wisdom contained within. Now, wisdom, of course, is supposed to drive us to know Jesus and trust him and follow him. Wisdom is also intended to provoke us. It's intended to reveal to us the nature of the world as God made it to be so that we might change the way that we think and live and operate. And so that's 
some of what you're going to see in this psalm as we read it. It's a wisdom psalm. It's moving towards change for us, and it also is going to reflect on things broadly and consider major issues like life and death. The second thing that we should note is the kind of, I guess the nature of the psalm, it's, it's a joyful psalm. It is bold. It has almost a cavalier tone. Now, our tendency is to read the Bible with sort of the same voice at every point, right? The Bible is as varied as the library. Its genres are all over the place. But, but our Bible voice, when we read it, maybe at home with our families or at church, tends to be like the same sort of tone. So it's like, rejoice always, I say again. Rejoice is the same as like, I was deeply distressed and despaired of life. And you're like, okay, well, maybe those aren't the same thing. Maybe we've got to provide a little bit of different contrasts as we're reading this. Psalm 49 is, is bold, and it's almost flippant. And if you'll allow me, I think that the genre that is the most similar to the genre of Psalm 49 would be an American rap diss track. And I understand that that might surprise you, but I think it really works. Like, that is the way of Psalm 49. Now, now rap, they, this, the psalmist was not going to rap this. Please understand. It would have worked sort of within the cultural sort of ways that music worked at this particular time. But that's the closest equivalent for us. There are only a couple of genres where you can do this sort of thing, where you can sort of attack somebody. In some kinds of, of like, southern country music, you know, like, I hope Neil Young will remember a southern man, don't need him around anyhow. Like that sort of thing where you can diss somebody in the course of a song. That is the, the sense of all of this, but also like a rap diss track. With all the force of Notorious B.I.G. when he says to a group of New York rappers as he ascends to be the undisputed king of East Coast rap, he says, your reign on top was short like leprechauns as I crush so-called willies, thugs, and rapper dons. That's the energy of Psalm 49 right here, okay? So, with that introduction, let's take a look at the language of Psalm 49, inspired by God, written for us by a talented DJ, one of the sons of Korah. Great is the Lord. Hear this, all you peoples. I almost started reading Psalm 48 after that introduction. All right, Psalm 49. Hear this. All you peoples, listen, all you who live in this world, both low and high, rich and poor alike, my mouth will speak words of wisdom, the utterance from my heart will give understanding, I will turn my ear to a proverb, with the heart I will expound my riddle. Why should I fear when evil days come, when wicked deceivers surround me, those who trust in their wealth and boast of their great riches? No man can redeem the life of another or give to God a ransom for him. The ransom for a life is costly. No payment is ever enough that he should live on forever and not see decay. For all can see that wise men die, the foolish and the senseless alike perish, and leave their wealth to others. Their tombs will remain their houses forever, their dwellings for endless generations, though they had land, named lands after themselves. But man, despite his riches, does not endure. He is like the beasts that perish. This is the fate of those who trust in themselves and of their followers who approve of their sayings. 
Like sheep, they're destined for the grave, and death will feed on them. The upright will rule over them in the morning. Their forms will decay in the grave far from their princely mansions. But God will redeem my life from the grave. He will surely take me to himself. Do not be overawed when a man grows rich, when the splendor of his house increases, for he will take nothing with him when he dies. His splendor will not descend with him, though while he lived he counted himself blessed. And men praise you when you prosper. He will join the generation of his fathers who will never see the light of life. A man who has riches without understanding is like the beasts that perish. The word of the Lord. Let's bow our heads together in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the gift of being here at Brookfield CRC. Thank you for the way, just personally, that you use this congregation to raise me and to help me see and know your son and love him and trust him and worship him. Lord, with so much gratitude for all of the prayers and the love and the kindness and the instruction and the faithfulness that I've received within this space, I pray that you would so work within me by your spirit that I might be able to speak a word of truth and comfort and hope and encouragement and love, a word that might help us to cherish Jesus, to love him and serve him. I pray that you might work by your Holy Spirit in power so that we might hear and understand the words of Psalm 49. I pray that you would give us ears to hear and, and hearts to receive and minds to understand. Give us a willing self to go out and love and serve you and trust in you and believe in you and realize that you save from death. And so we pray that you would work powerfully now and we pray this in the power of the Spirit, and in the name of Jesus, amen. Let me start by just sharing with you a brief story. I uh, have appreciated for a long time from afar the work of a theologian named D.A. Carson, or Don Carson. He is a, a really, uh, he's written a ton of books. I mean, he's probably written more books than I have read. And uh, he publishes them all the time. He's been used by God mightily and well for the building up of the church. And, and a lot of times in my life when I've struggled with one uh, item or another within the Christian life and my own thinking, I've been able to go to his books and read and study and, and learn from him. So uh, about a year ago, we had the privilege at Orland Park CRC where I pastor of having him come and preach for us at Orland Park CRC. So I was super nervous. I cleaned my office, which almost never happens. It was pristine for when he arrived so that he would come and be impressed with me. And uh, I was very happy that he was going to preach to the congregation. Maybe they were going to be impressed by the fact we had this great theologian come and fill our pulpit. He called me Jeff Bukema in the sermon, which totally ended any of that like pride that I might have had for the fact that he was coming to preach at Earl Park CRC. My staff has taken that. I went on vacation. I came back to a poster that said, Welcome Home, Jeff, which is just great, great memory, a reminder of the fact that we got to be humble. God exalts the humble. 
As I was waiting for him, um, you know, I, 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 he, uh, he was brought into, he came in through the wrong doors, which happens. He was brought into, the, uh, into my study, and I met him, and he introduced himself by saying this. He said, now, Pastor, Pastor Jeff, if, uh, if my hand shakes at all during the preaching of this particular sermon, it's because I have Parkinson's, he said. And I, uh, I told him, I'm so sorry, uh, Dr. Carson. And when I told him that I was sorry, he looked at me like I was crazy. And he said, why? We're all going to die, you know. And then there was an uncomfortable silence. And he said, but don't worry. It's nothing that a good general resurrection can't fix. That's good. Isn't that good? That is really good. Don Carson uh, then came into my pastor's study and we chatted for a while, frankly and forthrightly, about death. He was dying, and his best friend was dying. His best friend was Tim Keller. And I don't believe I've ever had a conversation with another person about their own death. Now, Dr. Carson is still living, but I've never had a conversation with another person about their own death that has been more frank, more fearless, and more humorous. And the question is, how is that possible? If you were to talk about your own death, would you be able to do it with a chuckle? Would you be able to do it without blinking? Would you be able to even talk about it at all? How can Don Carson be completely unafraid of the wickedness of death when facing down the trouble of Parkinson's and realizing his own mortality? How can he be so unafraid? How can he be so bold? And if you're wondering that today, if you're wondering how a person could have that level of boldness, you are asking exactly the question that Psalm 49 answers. In fact, the psalm writer begins his diss track with wisdom with this kind of question. Now, while Don Carson wasn't afraid of one kind of wickedness and trouble, and that is sickness that will eventually lead to death, the psalm writer looks at another kind of wickedness, a kind that might frustrate you. The fact that it's the liars and the cheats and the just plain cruel who seem to have it easy, who have great wealth and power. They have enough money. They have enough to trust in it. They've got one of those trust funds that's never going to spend out. They have all the power. They exert control over institutions of government or even religion. They're so wealthy that lands are named for them. That's what verse 11 says, that these sorts of folks are so wealthy and powerful that people will name the lands that they're living for all of them. You might say that these are the folks that have their names on the important academic buildings at the most prestigious institutions. These are the individuals whose last name you recognize because wealth has been transferred from one generation to the next and the next and the next. And so often the people that get to exert this level of control have their power intensified and consolidated no matter the state of the economy. And the psalm writer looks at this and says, why should I be afraid when I see all of that? Why should I be afraid? You all look at the success and the control of the wicked, and you are afraid. I look at it, and I say, so what? That's the intro to the psalm. And what the sage singer will tell us today, and the reason that Don Carson can boast while facing down death, and the reason that the psalm writer can diss the wicked powerful, is that those who know resurrection life don't need to fear the wicked, their wealth, their power, or even death, 
I like the way that that sounds, so I just want to play it back for you one more time. Those who know resurrection life don't need to fear the wicked, their wealth or power, or even death. And in reference to a faithful and important teacher and mentor, we're going to have three points. The first is, we're all going to die, you know. And the second is, but don't worry, it's nothing a good general resurrection can't fix. And the third is, because we're all going to die, you know. That's actually the structure of the psalm. So let's look at what the psalm writer is saying. The way that the psalm writer begins the body of his song here in verses 7 through 11 is by telling us that you cannot ever have enough money to keep yourself from death. That's what's recorded for us in verses 7 through 11. Let me just touch on this again. No man can redeem the life of another or give to God a ransom for him. The ransom for a life is costly. No payment is ever enough that he should live on forever and not see decay. For all can see that wise men die, the foolish and the senseless like perish, and leave their wealth to others. Their tombs will remain their houses forever. That's what he's saying. You can't ever have enough money to cheat death, to save yourself from death. You could have wealth enough to pay for your own chef and dietitian who could prepare the perfect, healthy, anti-inflammatory meals for you of leafy greens and organ meats. There could be no processed sugar that ever passes through your lips. You could be as healthy as they come. You could have a personal trainer dedicated to only you to ensure that you are in peak shape. You could buy the best post-workout material you could consume acai bowls to your heart content. You could have a team of medical professionals whose job was to just make sure you were in peak health and then to check on you anytime things go the smallest bit awry to make sure that you are always in a safe, healthy place. You could have a house with a security team that was so safe and is designed by the best designers, so everything is feng shui, and you're never experiencing any rise in your cortisol levels. You could sleep in a hyperbaric oxygen chamber, and guess what? You'll still die. None of that can redeem your life from death, because you still sin, and because you live in a world that's still stained by sin. And it does not matter how much money we have, there is not enough to pay someone to remove that, stin, that, sin, uh, that stain of sin from us or the stain of sin from the world in which we live. You can't pay enough to have it removed from you. And the psalm writer can be confident because he says, now I might just be a simple musician and you might be so powerful that institutional academic buildings or recreational complexes are named for you. You might be able to be cruel and boastful because of your wealth, but you are going to die just like me, despite the fact that you are so wealthy and powerful, and I'm just a DJ. Already we can see some of the benefit and wisdom of this psalm. The psalm writer is giving to us wisdom straightforwardly in giving us a perspective to help us live wisely because we live in the light of the brevity of our own existence. No matter what level of wealth you have, you are going to die, and you can't change that. This was helpful to me recently in a personal way. It's a little bit of an odd story. I hope it's okay that I tell it. I, uh, one thing about me is I absolutely love cars. I love them with uh, all my heart, which is probably too much love for cars. And I love new cars. I drive a, a wonderful 11-year-old vehicle, but I have to ask the Holy Spirit to work within me 
uh, uh, not coveting my neighbor's vehicle. That's, a, that's just a problem that I have. And one of the things that I will do sometimes when I get a little bit of time is I will go to a car dealership and I will drive, test drive the car that I wish I could drive. And I love it. I, and it's great because every time I do that, I just have to answer about two phone calls a day for one month and then we're all set. Um, but the, the Hyundai dealer near me knows that I do this well enough that I walk in and the lady will slide the keys to me and be like, all right, just drive it, show your wife, come back. I'll call you twice a day for the next month. And I love, I love the 2023 Hyundai Palisade. And so recently I went to the dealer and she slid the keys across to me. It's like, show your wife. I drove it home. I was like, Aubrey, look at this amazing car. And she uh, very kindly comes out of the house and sits in it. She's like, it's nice, Derek. You know, we can't afford it, right? And I'm like, I know. And then I drive it home. I was driving my Hyundai Palisade home and I was like, it would be so nice if I could just buy this car, if I could just drive this car. That would be quite the life. And then I, I thought about it and I thought, you know, if I save very well, if I'm really thrifty, if I cut back in expenses, if I invest well, maybe in 10 years I can buy a 2023 Hyundai Palisade. <laughs> and uh, I, I got back to the dealership and as I was getting out and had to slide the keys back, I just thought, Lord, that'd be really nice. I don't know how to deal with this covetousness, but I had been working on Psalm 49, and so I thought, whether I have a palisade or not, I'm going to die. <laughs> and that was oddly comforting to me. And now, that's, that's a little bit of dark humor, but it sort of gets at a point, right? No matter how much you have, no matter what you possess or drive, you are going to die. Your ability to preserve your life, says the psalm writer, is actually equivalent to the ability of an animal to preserve its life. That's what verse 12 tells us. But man, despite his riches, does not endure. He is like the beasts that perish. I could drive the nicest vehicle in the world and I would still die like a beast. And if that's it, if that's where Psalm 49 were to end, it's given to us wisdom because it helps us to recognize how little some of these temporary and fleeting things matter. It can help us order our life well. It can actually help us be more content if the psalm ends right there. Already we've been helped through verse 12 but it doesn't give us very much hope. It's given genuine wisdom, but it hasn't given us hope. But that's because it doesn't stop there. We're all going to die, you know. But it's nothing a good general resurrection can't fix. And that's what takes us to the second part. And that's when the psalm writer will, in a few short verses, start to tell us about why he can be so bold in the face of death. Before he does that, the psalm writer actually tightens the screws for a little bit in the next section. He says, this is the fate of those who trust in themselves uh, and their followers, of those who prove their sayings. Like sheep, they're destined for the grave, and death will feed on them. The Hebrew says that death is actually their shepherd. They are sheep. Death is their shepherd. The upright will rule over them in the morning. Their forms will decay in the grave. 
far from princely mansions. And so the screws are actually tightened here. And it tells all of us, if we are living for the American dream, just for influence, just for a Hyundai Palisade, then we are a fool. And we're worthy of being pitied. And the psalm writer starts to pity the wealthy, powerful in this section. He's like, yeah, the righteous are actually going to rule over you in the morning. Your form is going to decay in the grave. You are a sheep. Now, if you spend very much time on Twitter or Facebook, you'll probably see somebody call another person a sheep. It's, it's a pretty in, intense like, critique or criticism of that person. Sheep are pretty dumb animals. They're mindless. They'll follow kind of whoever's leading them. They'll be saved from a trap, and then they'll jump around and then jump right back into that same trap. They're just foolish animals that will go wherever they're led. And the psalm writer says, hey, if you're trusting in your wealth or your power or your influence, then death is your shepherd. You are just a dumb sheep. And at some point, Death, your shepherd's going to call your name and you, like the dumb, obedient sheep that you are, are going to come trotting out and your life will end. And you'll be pitiable. Now, I say this not to shame anybody. I, I, don't, I don't say any of this to, to bring any shame on any person. I, I want to say this in love because I want for you and for me to recognize the depth of the wisdom of Psalm 49. I want for us to be helped by the words inspired by God written for us in Psalm 49, and I want for us to recognize the beauty of the hope that's offered here, especially in verse 15. But God will redeem my life from the grave. He will surely take me to himself. What the sons of Korah knew is that God is so good and God is everlasting, and that God promises that his own will one day be with him too. Now, in the Old Testament, we don't have a fully fleshed out doctrine of resurrection like we do in the Lord Jesus speaks and teaches us in the New Testament. We don't have all of the clarity and the beauty of Jesus and his teaching. We don't have 1 Corinthians 15. We don't have revelation yet in the Old Testament, and yet the sons of Korah knew the nature of God well enough to know that God is a God that saves from death, that God is a God that redeems his own from death. And if we look into the Old Testament, we can see that the faithful followers of God realize that that's true too, that God is a God that redeems and saves from death. He allowed some of his prophets, Elijah and Elisha, to bring an individual back from the dead, an astounding miracle that demonstrates the power of God over death. King David, in, his, in one of his psalms, Psalm 23, says that he will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And Job, in Job 17, says, after my flesh has decayed, yet somehow in my flesh at the end I will see God the faithful followers of God in the Old Testament realized that God was the kind of God that redeemed his own from death. And so the sons of Korah testify to that same truth here in Psalm 49. Yeah, 
You might be wicked and powerful, but guess what? You are going to die just like me. But guess what happens to me who trusts in God after I die? He pulls me out of it. The same is true for you if you trust in Jesus, if you're a Christian. And if you want proof, I've got something even better than the words of Job or the illustration of Elijah or Elisha. Because in the fullness of time, our Savior was born. He was wrapped in swaddling clothes and he was placed in a manger. He was given the name Jesus because he came to redeem us from our sins. And he lived for you. And then he went to the cross for us. And he died for us. And he was buried for us. And on the third day, God exercised his strength. He called his son up from the grave. And Jesus rose again, and he appeared to his apostles. He appeared to more than 500 of the brothers. And what 1 Corinthians 15 tells us is that Jesus is the first fruits. The first fruits are the first part of the harvest, the first part of the harvest that, that arises and shows up and lets you know that the rest of the harvest is just about to show up. The rest of it's going to be brought in as well. And so when Jesus gets up from the grave, it's the first part of the harvest that you and I are a part of. As Jesus rises from the grave, it is proof that we will rise again too, that death will not be the final word, but that God will redeem our soul from death. Psalm 49, verse 15, is fulfilled in Christ and in you who believe in Jesus. And so don't worry. It's nothing a good general resurrection can't fix. Because we're all going to die, you know. Now, the psalm ends with the psalm writer taking all of the wisdom that we've sort of gained through these first 15 verses and applying it again at the end. But as we read this last part, it's not just we're all this part of undifferentiated folks that are going to die. He sort of applies the wisdom that we've gained to how we live in the light of all of this, knowing that death is coming. And there are a few things that he notes here. The first is that we don't have to be afraid. He's not afraid, he's not overawed. Do not be overawed, don't be afraid when a man grows rich when the splendor of his house increases. What the psalm writer is telling us as this psalm draws to its conclusion is that he is not afraid of the wealthy, wicked, powerful, and you don't have to be either because the one who has you is far more powerful than the ones whose shepherd is death. And so don't be afraid. Don't be overawed. Don't be overly impressed. God being able to redeem you from death is way more impressive than having a country name for you. The second is that you can't take it with you. In verse 17, he says, For he'll take nothing with him when he dies. His splendor will not descend with him. Verse 17 is a potent 
piece of wisdom. It reminds us that no matter what we gain during the course of this life, we can't take it with us. Maybe you've heard the story of the man who believed that he could. He became wealthy. Maybe you've heard this. Maybe you know him. He became very wealthy, and he told his wife, after I die, I want to be buried with everything that I made in this life. He's like, I'll provide for you. I'll put a little bit in a bank account to cover the taxes. You can have the house. The taxes will be covered. You'll have money enough to live on, but everything else I want to be buried with. And he insisted and insisted and insisted, and so finally his wife agreed. And the day came where he died, and his wife was a Christian. And so she knew that she had to live into the promise that she had made. And so preparations were made, and the day of the visitation happened, and he was there sitting in the casket, and so his wife came to fulfill her promise, and so she came up to the casket, and she wrote him a check for every single cent that it was in his bank account, and she placed that check in the casket. If you can get up and cash it, it's all yours. And as he was buried, he was buried with everything that he had ever made. A testament to the fact that you can't take it with you. As Psalm 49 comes to a close, we're reminded of that same sort of thing. And wisdom tells us that given that everything that we have right now is limited by the term of our own life, that the way that we deploy the resources that God has given to us should bring him honor and glory and, and lead to flourishing and thriving. It should, it should honor him. It's, it's his money, right? We should honor him with it as we have it because we can't take it with us. We get, to, we get to direct it for the period of our life, and then it's gone. Here's the third thing. The psalm ends with this interesting phrase, well, just before it's ended, it gives this interesting phrase that, that reminds us that wealth itself is, is not what's bad, it's, it's trusting in wealth. He says this in verse 18, though while he lived, he counted himself blessed, and men praise you when you prosper. Okay, so this, this little phrase here, it, again, if, if you were to translate it a little bit more woodenly, it'd be like, and you do well when you prosper, that's what the Hebrew is saying, it's it's this little insertion. It's not shaming people for having money or wealth. It's saying, hey, if you do well, good for you. That's great. Just recognize all these other truths. You know, the Bible is so balanced. The world that God has made is good. It's beautiful. It's, it's enriching. It's, it's all glorious, right? And so the gifts that God gives, including wealth, it's a tool to be used to glorify and praise him. It's not bad in and of itself bad when we misuse it. It's bad when we trust in it. It's bad if it becomes our shepherd, because death becomes our shepherd. But use it for him. And then it ends with a final comment about death. A man who has riches without understanding is like the beasts that perish. A final reminder for us as the psalm comes to a conclusion that we're all going to die, you know. But do you know that while he began the psalm by talking about how all of us this, in this undifferentiated sort of way are like beasts that die, here he says somebody that dies without understanding. Now, in the language of wisdom, we know that there is a certain beginning of understanding. 
that it's the fear of the Lord. That's the beginning of wisdom. It's the fear of the Lord that's the beginning of understanding. And so this person talking in a wisdom context saying, hey, if you die without understanding, that means that you're dying without the fear of the Lord. That means that you're the sort of person that dies without trusting in God. He says it's people that die without the fear of the Lord that have demonstrated themselves to be like pitiable beasts. The psalm writer is no longer in this group of people that are being talked about. He is a part of those that are going to have their souls saved from death. And so in this final line, there's this word of hope for everybody that trusts in God. And to sum up the message, it would be this. We're all going to die, you know. But don't worry. For everyone that trusts in Jesus and belongs to him, it's nothing that a good re- general resurrection can't fix. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the stark, good, potent words of Psalm 49. We pray that we would take these words to heart and view our lives in the light of death and resurrection. We pray that you would give to us the kind of boldness and confidence that can rightly be ours as those who belong to you. And we pray that we would realize the truth of verse 15, that you are a God who saves from death, and that we would realize that all of the pain or trouble that we might experience in this sin-sick world will be redeemed by glorious general resurrection. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.